Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, Mark Sisson. Hey everyone, Mark Sisson here at the Primal Blueprint Podcast Studios in lovely Malibu, where it's raining today, but uh, we need the rain so I can live with that. Um, I'm here in the studio uh, with L. Russ, who would be your normal host today. Uh, I've got a special guest on that I wanted to speak with directly. And um, today, I want to talk about motivation and purpose, two important qualities I think we need to address when we're looking to live an awesome life. And for that, I brought in my good friend, Christine Hassler. Christine and I have known each other for about 10 years now. She's the best-selling author of three books, most recently, Expectation Hangover, Free Yourself from Your Past, Change Your Present, and Get What You Really Want. She left her successful job as a Hollywood agent to pursue a life she could be passionate about. For over a decade, as a keynote speaker, retreat facilitator, spiritual psychologist, and life coach, and host of the top-rated podcast, Over It and On With It, she's been teaching and inspiring people around the world. Christine believes once we get out of our own way, we can show up to make the meaningful impact we're here to make. She is, of course, also the coach to our coaches at PrimalHealthCoach.com. You can find out more about her online at www.ChristineHassler.com. Hey, Christine. Always excited and grateful to have conversations with you. Likewise. Um, And I'm very excited about the topic today and... uh, I want to get kind of right into it, but before we do, I wanted to maybe explore a little bit about your past and your journey and how you how you got to where you are today. And and it's my understanding that it started a little raggedy, maybe uh, being diagnosed and medicated for depression at ten years old. So can you? Oh sure, sure. Um, And there were a lot of beautiful things that happened as I was growing up as well, of course. And we all have our stories. We all have our journey. And we all have the things that happen in our life that if we transform them, if we really ask, what did I really learn from this versus why did this happened to me? Oftentimes we find our purpose with, within those challenging experiences. So I was, um, I had a, a rough time socially. I was, uh, the smart kid and teased a lot and just was very insecure and spent a lot of time alone. And my parents saw me go from you know, a very outgoing, happy little girl to someone who just was very in her head and very withdrawn. And it was the time when if you had a problem, you got a pill for it. And so um, the doctors really recommended that I go on some Prozac. And and honestly, it helped. It really did. And it helped me, you know, feel a little bit better. Um, but the problem was, you know, I was put on it so young that I became addicted to it. And I was also told that, I would always be depressed and that I had a chemical imbalance. And if I was diabetic, I'd take insulin. And so this is just something that I'd have to deal with for the rest of my life. And so that C got 
programmed into my brain and whatever we're told forms our belief system. So I truly, truly believe that I was just going to be depressed the rest of my life and that I would just have to take medication. That was just my fate. Um, and I really didn't unravel that belief until I was 30. So almost two decades of my life, I was medicated and I was a high functioning depressed person. Like I wasn't somebody that like stayed in bed with the covers over my eyes. I was incredibly hard on myself, which made me incredibly driven because I tried to compensate for areas where I felt like not enough by being very successful outwardly. So I was able to do a lot and get a lot done, moved out to Hollywood after I graduated from college and started a career in the entertainment industry and was an agent at a young age and kept checking the boxes off in terms of the things that I thought would make me happy, but nothing really was doing it. Um, and so it wasn't until I started to really go down the, the road of personal growth and discovery and alternative medicine and health and well-being that I started to create shifts in my life and reoriented from some expecting something outside of me to fix me, be it a pill or a certain amount of money or a relationship or a career or whatever, to really learning that uh, the answers were inside of me and that I could heal myself. Wow. So <clears throat> I'm recognizing um, a little bit of myself in your story, uh, and I in the in the word that comes across is overachiever. <laughs> no, that's shocking. Right? It's it's that <laughs> ch yeah, check you know checking off the boxes, uh -huh. which I continue to do um, because I think that it's going to uh, you know somehow uh, make me perceive myself as a better person or a more successful person. Um, and it, you know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being an overachiever. Uh, Believe me, uh, but I think there's a shadowy side to that as well. What no, you, absolutely, what's your take on because that? The, the shadowy side, I would say, and I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this, but the shadowy side for me is that enough is never enough. And the, the way that I would achieve things was kind of being hard on myself. It was like, oh, I should do this and I should do this. And if this one thing didn't turn out the way I thought it needed to, I would be hard on myself and beat myself up and be incredibly critical of myself. So I think it's one time to one thing to be an achiever really that's living an inspired life with a big vision. That's different than being an overachiever because there's this feeling of like, I got to keep up or nothing's ever good enough, or I'm being hard on myself in order to get there. So that was the shadowy side for me is that I never felt peace. And once I'd achieved something, I wouldn't really celebrate. I'd achieve it and I'd be like, oh, okay, that was great. Now I got to do the next thing. And so there wasn't a lot of celebration in my life either. Yeah, I, I recognize that as well. It's, it's almost like the closer you get to a goal and you sort of realize that you're going to do that, um, the more, at least I tend to move on to the next goal almost immediately without that celebration, right. without figuring out, without t taking the time to acknowledge and, and, uh, and understand that uh, wow, this was this was a worthy pursuit, and the journey was uh, enjoyable, uh, and and the journey was in fact most of of what I'm going to get out of it. Not not that sort of pinhole of instantaneous um, singularity that happens when you achieve the goal, right? I mean, if you look at what it takes to achieve a goal, and all the steps and all the things you have to do to get to that end point to achieve that goal, once the goal's done it it really is there's a in many cases there's a letdown right and and um it's that inability i think to enjoy the process that i've had to kind of reframe my life around and say okay i talk about living an awesome life how can i live awesome moment to moment 
uh, and enjoy and ex you know extract the greatest amount of pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment out of each possible moment rather than always thinking in the future about what will happen, how I will feel if I achieve right, exactly. this Exactly. And that's the part of it that becomes addictive is because – we, one goal happens and then we feel that temporary sense of, oh, wow, I did this. And then we get the external validation too. So not only was I internally kind of addicted to the achievement, but I got a lot of positive reinforcement from external sources. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so successful. Oh, it's so great that you did that. And so that was the part that I had to really look at too. Like, okay, I keep being pushing myself so hard because I'm looking for somebody to tell me, hey, good job, Christine. Maybe I just need to tell myself that more, you know, that I wouldn't push myself mm -hmm. hard. So I think that a lot of like highly successful people can relate to this. And I think that part of the fear is if we let that overachiever really driven part of us go, there's like this fear that, well, what will I do? Like, will I get lazy? Will I be as successful? And so we have to find a new way to feel really inspired and to go out and achieve things. But without, like you said, the shadowy part of not celebrating the success enough is never enough and being really hard on ourselves. So you work with a lot of people, different ages, but I suspect more younger people than than um, baby boomers. Actually, uh, no. <laughs> to what at, at this point, it's say, like, say, at this point, again. I would say most of the people I work with are twenty five to about sixty five. Yeah. Oh, that's a big range for sure. Yeah. So, talk about goals. I mean, do you use goals with people that you coach, or are you? Are goals, I mean, are they useful or are they a setup? Uh, what's, how do goals get incorporated into this idea of living an awesome life and, and finding more? Great question. I think, I think goals are a setup for what I like to call an expectation hangover. If we pursue them with high involvement and high attachment or even low involvement, and high attachment, anytime we pursue goals with high attachment, and I'll explain what that means. We're setting ourselves up for disappointment. And the reason is it's great to pursue goals and be very involved and know that you did your best. But when your emotional okayness, your sense of worthiness, your relationship with yourself, like your self-confidence, when all of that is dependent on achieving the goal, then we're really setting ourselves up for a potential expectation hangover, which is like disappointment and letdown. So I think goals are useful because we need a compass. We need direction. But we need to ask what is this goal for? Like, is this a goal that I really want to achieve because it's going to be in alignment with my values? So the first thing I do with any client that's coming to me because they want to achieve goals is I'm like, let's put that aside. Give me your top five core values. And most people don't know their values. They just are like, well, you know, integrity and love and, but they've never really given it thought. And so there's actually an exercise in expectation hangover where I have people really elicit their top five values in a way that really gets them clear on what they value most in life. And then goals come from that. So if your goals aren't in alignment with your values, then, then really what's the point? So that's the first part. And then the second part is like, how do you think this goal is going to make you feel? Do you think this is going to make you feel more confident, more successful, more loved, whatever? And then my work with them is, okay, so you don't have to wait for the goal to feel those things. How can you right now in your life start to feel that right now so that one, you're not waiting for some external thing and two, you're actually going to be more likely to achieve the goal. So let's say, for example, someone wants to start their own health coaching business and they think that once they do, they're finally going to feel free, you know, out of their corporate job, they're finally going to feel free and they're just dying to feel free. That's one of their values. 
Well, then I would say, okay, well, how do we find ways for you in your life to feel free right now, to feel that sense of freedom, to feel that sense of autonomy? What are some things you can implement in your life that will start to generate that feeling so that you are more likely to, like I said, not be dependent on the goal and also more likely to attract the goal? So that's the second part. And then the third thing with goals is to know that you know, when we're, when we're chasing a goal, we're really chasing the feeling. And when we get so attached to form, like it has to look like this, then again, we set ourselves up for disappointment. A lot of times something different emerges in terms of form, but we don't really give ourselves the opportunity to discover that unless we take steps toward a goal. So I always say, you know, take steps toward a goal, but don't hang on to the form too tightly. Be willing to be led in a different direction. Be willing for other opportunities to arise. But if you t- start taking that s- those steps towards something, at least you're going to get momentum and at least you're going to be on your way. I guess that's one derivation of uh, the phrase uh, having no attachment right. to the outcome, right? right? Exactly. So, you know, you can, you can have the goal and you can be uh, on the journey and you can be headed in that direction. But to the extent that the either the goal changes over time or it when you finally get there it's not exactly it doesn't look like what you anticipated um but to certainly have the willingness to appreciate it for what it is to um to to uh reframe or um readjust your sights from there but uh i think one of the things that that has worked for me in my life is that is that concept of not having an attachment to the outcome because because if you and whether or not the goal has the, the, takes the shape of what you envision, if you fail, uh, just outright fail, then that's really where not having an attachment to the outcome comes into play. And so I want to talk maybe a little bit about failure. I mean, is failure really failure? Is it a, you know, I mean, you know, the, the sort of palliative uh, interpretation of that, well, it's a learning experience and, you know, you, you move on from there. What's your? I mean, I think failure, failure is necessary in a lot of ways, but it depends on how we define it. Again, like we, we think we know everything in terms of we think we know what we want. We think we know what's going to be best for us, but we don't always. Like there's a lot of times I pursued a goal and, and it's failed for some reason. And then a month or a year or five years down the road, I'm like, oh, I see why that didn't work out. Like, I see why that wasn't successful. And or not only why why it didn't work out, but you're glad that in many cases, yeah, you're glad most of the time you are. And I think that fear of failure stops so many people from pursuing their goals. Like, I, I, my advice is don't wait until you're not scared. Don't wait until you're certain you're not going to fail, because if you're waiting for those perfect conditions, you're never going to go after it. Most big goals in my life that I've gone after, there was definitely uncertainty and there was definitely fear of failure. But I know that when I quote unquote fail, the key to recovering from it quickly is how I am with myself in the failure. Right. So if we go into judging ourselves and we conclude that, oh, you know, this one attempt at an online course failed, so I shouldn't ever, ever, ever try again. I must not be meant to be. Well, is that really true? We tend to make these drastic conclusions instead of going, okay, let me break it down. What did I do? What worked? What didn't work? You know, where was where was I really giving my all on this? Where did I have you know, where was I not all in either in terms of energetically not being all in or in terms of like my action steps and to do's not being all in. And so if we can look at failure 
with the lens of, like you said, what am I learning and really dig in, then we're, we're way more likely to succeed. And we're also not as likely to hold it as such a bad thing. The problem is most people with failure, they contract. So something fails, they go into contraction, they give up, they get hard on themselves, they go into resignation, and they decide that the best way to protect themselves from failure is to never try again. And really successful people, when they fail, they give themselves a couple of days, they're like, oh, well, that kind of sucked, you know, and, and they have their pity party about it for a little bit, because we're humans, and we definitely feel things. But then roll their sleeves up and go, all right, what did I learn? I'm going to look back on this. Because so many of us are going after goals that there's no manual for. Most of the things that really, really want in life, there's not a formula for it. There might be to some degree, but we're making it our own. So even if we model how someone else is doing it, we still have to adjust it to who we are. So the best way we learn is actually through the mistakes we make, because then we can really see what does work and doesn't work. Right. Uh, one of my few regrets about not taking action was, uh, I'm going to say 35 years ago, I had this idea to publish a magazine called Failure <laughs> Magazine. And, um, and it was just going to be a magazine that looked at stuff that didn't work, looked at all the failures and, and, and dissected and, uh, and you know, interviewed uh, the people and, and um, took a look at what went wrong so that anyone who read the magazine would get, you know, at least they'd, they'd get the benefit of, of that experience. But uh, alas, it, it did not come to be um, one, one other opportunity that's out there, I guess, for somebody. There may be a... I think, I think you're doing okay, Mark. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so social media, internet memes and hashtags would sort of have us believe that all you need to do in life, Christine, is lean in <laughs> and the universe will take care of you. And I know that you and I know a lot of people who have had some right. schooling in this area that really sort of, you know, focuses on that concept that the universe will provide. Now, yeah. I'm a skeptic. And, well, I'm a cynic. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> uh, s s skeptics being a little bit kind. Um, so let's, right. let's talk about that, about how, you know, th there's this danger that if you just sort of, I think uh, the book The Secret sort of, uh -huh. you know, started that whole thing. Like, uh, you know... The universe will provide, and, and you've got to create this space for stuff to, uh, to happen. And, you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But there's a danger in just kind of kicking back and going, well, um, you know, I don't, really, I don't really have any goals. Um, I sort of know where I want to be, but I'm right. just going to let the universe provide. <laughs> How much time do we have? Um, I think a lot of things about this. So I definitely am a mix of a very logical, practical person and the woo-woo spiritual person. My mom's a therapist. My dad's a CPA accountant. So I, I'm an offspring of the illogical and the emotional. So I think it's both. I think we are co-creators. I do think that, call it the universe, provides, but we have to show up. So let me just give a quick little example from my own life that just recently happened, and then we can we can unpack this even more. So I've been thinking about moving out of LA for a while, like a good seven months. And I kind of went into that, well, it'll happen when it's meant to happen. And so I'd go down to San Diego and I'd look at stuff and I was kind of waiting for the universe just to give me this massive sign that like, 
I was supposed to move down there and the perfect place was just going to fall in my lap and it was all going to be ease and grace. And all I had to do was make a vision board of everything I wanted and voila, it would appear. And it wasn't working. Like I wasn't finding a place. I was unsure of it. And then I realized, oh my gosh, like I'm completely complacent here. I'm completely forgetting that I'm a co-creator here and that like I need to take responsibility for my life and what I want. And so I was driving down to San Diego in December, just a month ago, and I was like, okay, I'm all in. I am fully committed to making this move and I'm going to make it by February 1st. And if I don't have my perfect place, I'm just going to stay with friends until I find it. I'm all in. I'm giving notice even if I don't find a place. That's a much different intention and, and sort of way to be with it than, well, if the perfect thing comes up, I just know that it's meant to be. Sometimes we have to make those choices and then the universe shows up. So as soon as I gave notice here, made that decision, got completely clear inside myself that this was what I was going to do and put a little plan in place, the next day I found my dream place. And it didn't come from just writing down a list. It, it came from getting 100% in alignment with the decision, not waiting for it to be made for me, and then taking action to make it happen. So I do think that sometimes super. Yeah. So I'm just going to stop you there and interrupt a little bit and say, you know what? So that wasn't magical. No. That was just, it's like, I'm going to learn how to swim. I'm going to jump off, jump off the diving board into the water close to the edge and damn it, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll figure out how to swim. Um, that you, you basically prompted yourself to take action. Right. Right. right? Now, yeah. now, I will say I do believe in the magical too. We can call it that. Um, but it, 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 I think the universe meets us at intention and action. So one, we've got to be all in in terms of our intention and believe in it. And two, we have to take action. And then you can call it flow, you can call it magic, you can call it whatever you want. I've seen too many, too, I've seen that happen too much in my own life and the lives of other people. So I think we can, we can be too far in either polarity. We can be too far on, I do everything on my own and it's completely up to me and there is no other like universal force. Or we can be on the other side, completely in resignation and like, well, the universe just provides for me and if it wasn't meant to be, it wasn't meant to be. A lot of people do that too, if like something... If they don't achieve a goal, they just like, oh, well, it wasn't meant to be. Something better is coming. Well, you, you want to look at how did how did you play a role in that not happening so that you can learn from it. Back to failure, you either go, oh, it wasn't meant to be. I failed, so something better must be coming. Or like successful people do, you look and you say, what the heck did I learn from it? So I think it's really, I mean, for me in my life, I found it works best to take 100% responsibility for what I want to create or not create in my life. And the more I'm in alignment with that, both with my actions and the way I'm thinking about it, the more life flows for me. The right people show up, the right apartment shows up, the right opportunities show up, the prosperity shows up. So whether that's magic or not, I don't know what we want to call it, but there there is some kind of a correlation. I agree, and I didn't. I didn't mean to to uh, speak lightly of it by calling oh, it. Oh no, magic. no, it's magic sword. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's sometimes, you know, you can you can use the term. Ma it was magical how it happened. You know, it's just uh, it was so perfect uh, how I put all these things in place, and the next thing you know, I had success. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to. I don't want to wax too. Uh, negative in this otherwise very uplifting uh, conversation. I do want to uh, 
um, put it out there. I'm, I've been working on a book. I'm not sure if I'm even going to write the book, but I've got copious notes that I've been working on for a long time about where we as society wind up in the next mm. 10 or 20 years. And one of the things that concerns me, it was interesting after the back and forth in the election about jobs and job creation, but then reading about all the technology and all of the ways in which uh, machines are going to be taking over a lot of the jobs, uh, I'm sort of predicting that in the next five to 10 years, we'll lose seven or 10 million jobs. They'll be gone. There'll be you know, uh, driverless trucks and warehouse operators that are machines and clerks with self, you know, self, self-checkout stuff. And there'll be a lot of people who will not have jobs. I don't necessarily think that that's going to be a bad thing because I think there'll be a way of taking, taking care of people who don't have jobs. I'm not uh, a socialist by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, I'm an Atlas shrugged kind of capitalist, but I do think that at some point there's probably going to have to be some kind of universal basic income and some allowance for people to live their lives uh, with, with ease and grace uh, and some amount of having um, taking care of them. And it's going to be okay not to have a job. But here's, my, here's where I'm going with that. The biggest issue that I see, and that's sort of the nature of the book that I'm contemplating, is people who don't have a job, who don't need a job because they're basically taken care of, how do they get up in the morning with purpose? What do they do with their lives? How do they motivate themselves to get to where they need to be? And I'm not posing that question. I don't expect you to answer that question right now, unprepared, Christine. But, but the idea that, that, it is, that it is purpose that really drives us, you know, that it's purpose that it's not about making the money. It's about sort of how I live my life and how I, how I take care of my family or love my kids with, with the means that I get from a job or whatever. And how does that change in time, how, when when that part of the equation is gone, where does the purpose come from, and what? Then all of a sudden, you're left with this sort of stark question, which is, okay, right. why am I here? Really, what? Why am I here? And I'm going to suggest that it's connection. I'm going to suggest that that's where we're headed as a society as a result of all of this stuff. Is that we're? I think we're at a, at a blip in the road right now with all of this disconnect, this digital. Uh, connectivity where you get eight teenagers in a room and they're not talking to each other. They're on their, they're on their devices, you know, texting and, and showing pictures of their food to everyone else. Um, we're at a, a blip in time right now, but that at some point in the next five or 10 years, we'll rediscover yeah. connectivity and we'll rediscover, um, you know, intimate relations with relationships with other people uh, to a, to a depth and a level that we, that we've sort of overlooked or, have um, cast aside in this short-term uh, experience of digital technology and, and yeah, and all I of think that. I, I I can't wait to read this book or or at least your notes. Um, I agree in so many ways, and especially as as a coach and leading retreats for people, people are so craving human connection, and we're seeing depression is just rising. It's, it's skyrocketing, especially in younger people right now. And I believe a big reason is because people have the illusion of connection. They think just because they have 4,000 Facebook friends and they're on their phone all day, they're connected, but that's not connection. There's nothing like human interaction 
it, it, it fills a part of our heart and our brain that's necessary to our survival. Without that kind of connection, we sort of die off as a species. I mean, we, we need that. It's essential. And I think we're even seeing it in the political climate. I mean, there's so much disconnection in our country. It's ex- it's extreme just in terms of people are really looking for unity. They don't necessarily know they're looking for that, um, but people are craving unity and connection. I, I think an answer to your question about what are people going to do someday when they wake up and they don't have a job, like what's their sense of purpose? The main way that I would suggest finding it is through service. You know, anybody can be bingo. Anybody, any single person can be of service. You can, you know, you don't have to start a nonprofit and build schools in Africa to be of service. You can be of service in your family. You can knock on your neighbor's door and say, is there anything I can help you with? You can find a cause you're committed to. You can go read books to people in a hospital. And there's so, so, so many ways to do it. And I think also this disconnection in technology and everybody having, you know, 10 social media platforms where we put our highlight reels up, we've all become incredibly self-absorbed and living in our own little world. And I think we've really, really disconnected from not just being connecting, not just being connected to other people, but being of service. And, you know, whether you're a health coach or whether you're a parent, everybody has skills to be of service and just being a kind person and showing up and being present with another human being is service. And I think another part where people get a little tripped up is they see people doing big things, you know, like I said, like starting a nonprofit and they get intimidated and they say, Oh, how am I going to contribute? And they think that they have to write a book or start a blog in order to contribute. And that's absolutely not true. So if you're somebody listening and you don't know what your purpose is or you're craving more purpose, find a way to get out of your own head and show up and be of service to someone else. I think that's one of the main reasons that uh, we created the Primal Health Coach mm-hmm. program. Um, and I, I don't want to turn this into an infomercial, but uh, um, but it, it does segue nicely into the concept of uh, taking the idea that you don't have to be skilled and you don't need years of medical school to look somebody in the eye and to get a sense of, of who they are and what their, what their um, desires are in terms of health and fitness and the rest of their life and, and be a compassionate, empathetic sounding board for them and to assist them in figuring out ways in which uh, you, might, you might be able to guide them uh, toward uh, greater health yep. or better enjoyment of life or uh, getting off meds or whatever that is. And, and, and to that end... One of the areas that I do see increasing, so I, you know, I would say that that you know that, that Uber drivers, while they're enjoying a great moment in time right now, um, you know, there'll be self-driving mm-hmm. cars in five years. So Uber drivers are going to be kind of looking yeah. for what the next thing is, and you know, and and truckers and and the whole thing. So there'll be a, a a large portion of the working population that is that who gets displaced by the technology. But the beauty and the irony of it is. That, that the ability to, um, to connect with a human being on a one-to-one level, being of service, as you say, um, will become of greater and greater value. And people will actually be willing to pay for that service and be willing to say, wow, you know, now I've got, you know, I used to go to my doctor who, who just chastised me because I, I didn't eat right and I didn't exercise enough, but he wouldn't yeah. tell me how to do it. Uh, and then he spent his seven minutes with me and told me how my blood work sucked and then <laughs> sent me on my way. And now I have somebody that I can talk to about that who's knowledgeable, who knows how to do that, whether she's a, 
or he is a, a physician's assistant or a nurse, nurse practitioner or a trainer, or whatever, uh, or right. a life coach. And, and not even that well-versed in the health aspect, but somebody who can just, like, like you and like some of the people that you coach, uh, the, the coaches that you coach, um, be in a position to be of service to a, an individual or a group of individuals or a family and say, um, you know, here's how you can find purpose and motivation and fulfillment and contentment and extract the greatest amount of pleasure out of, uh, out of every yeah. possible moment. I really think... That's where we're headed. Yeah, feel good, me too. Actually. And I think to, we've, to, we've to needed think a massive sea change. And I think as a country, we're, we're going through a big expectation hangover in terms of just like, whoa, where are we right now? And we're in a big transformative time. And, and I, I think we're going to see even more change. And that's why we're going to actually need to be more connected to each other. We're going to need to be of service because a lot of people are going to be in need. And we're going to, you know, definitely need to get out of our own little bubbles. You know, I think just even the way we live, like in our homes, separated, and then we get in our car on our own and we don't really live in community anymore. And that's one thing I'm really seeing, like with the millennial generation and even the generation after them, which is like teenagers right now. They're wanting to cohabitate more. They're wanting to like the, the word commune is coming back in terms of talking about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a lot of sense because when we're, when we're living like our own little kind of independent self-absorbed lives, we're, we're, we just become more monsters. How do I get more stuff? How do I get more money? How do I get more fit? How do I get whatever it may be? And we're not, because we're not like connected to enough community and we're not being of service enough. And, and I, I, that's why another reason I'm so proud to be associated with the primal health coaching program, because even if someone says, I don't know that I want to make health coaching as my career, just what they learn from that, someone's going to show up in their life. It could be their mother. It could be their child. It could be a best friend. Someone's going to show up that they're going to be able to help. And they're going to feel amazing when they're able to do that, as is that person. So anytime we can learn something that's going to be of service to someone else, I think that's such a valuable investment of our time and energy. Agreed. I I read uh, in the Wall Street Journal a while back, so it must be true, (laughs) uh, that uh, a... a, uh, uh, study was done on millennials, and and it was determined that, and I love this that uh, it's for them. It's not about the stuff. It's not about accumulating the stuff. It's Correct. about experiences. Yeah. Uh, so the typical millennial budget includes dining out with friends, includes as much travel as they can fit in. Um, also includes that sort of communal experience, which is why yeah. places like we work are so successful now, where there's this 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 great networking thing. So I think it bodes well for for the future um in again in combination with the idea that uh if people are looking for the experiences and knowing that that those experiences involve um uh, communication and closeness and empathy uh and connection connection and 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 um so i I, i'm feeling pretty good about even though i've just painted this (laughs) bleak picture of a jobs a jobs issue i think that that and and this what again what i i want to have happen in my book is to kind of coach people into that space where it's it's okay because no matter how much money you have or don't have or aspire to have or how many things you have or the stuff you you want to get one day um, I guarantee you that you still love your kids as much right. as possible right now uh, that you can 
that you can have the visceral experiences, whether it's a hike or a swim or a workout or having sex with your partner or whatever it is, you can have that right now. Uh, you can acknowledge yourself for all of the wonderful things you do right now. So you, you have that capacity to be in a perfect, loving, awesome space. Absolutely. Right now. Yep. That's the thing. What, how, back to what I was saying earlier about we think we're chasing the thing, but we're really chasing the feeling. And we're capable of creating whatever feeling we think that thing is going to give us like right, right, right now. And a lot of times it takes disruption, disappointment, things not going great for us to like wake up to how lucky we are um, and actually maybe look at how we're creating our life, not in the way we want to create it. And so I agree with you in terms of, you know, it, it could sound to people like you're painting a dark, dismal picture, but it's, it's a catalyst and it's an opportunity for us to make some changes because here's the thing. I, I speak a lot in corporate America and people are really not happy. <laughs> like so many people are dying in a corporate job working for the man and just like rinse and repeat life day after day after day, but they don't have the courage or, or, or it's not necessary for them to leave because they've gotten in their comfort zone. So perhaps it is going to take a shake up. And that's why, you know, you're talking about writing this book. That's why I wrote expectation hangover because as, as a human being and as a coach, I have seen that people don't know how to leverage disappointment. They just want to get over it, get through it, get to the next thing. Whereas if you really leverage it and you go in and heal it and, and look at it on the emotional, mental, behavioral, and spiritual level, then it's like gold because you have an opportunity to recreate something way, 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 way better. But if you don't look at it and just try to get through it and blame it on you know, your parents or your ex or the government or the job market or the president-elect – then you're going to consistently be a victim of your life. And you will never be happy if you don't really, really get that you create your reality. I think one thing that we've done that's kind of uh, put a little bit of a, um, a, a glitch there, we've kind of hobbled the generation that, that I helped raise. Um, and I'm not going to admit to having done a lot of this stuff, but, you know, the sort of helicopter parenting, the, the, the no child left behind, the every kid gets a participation medal, the concept that if you, you know, you have a, an issue with your teacher, um, the teacher g gives the child a, a better grade just because they didn't want to deal with you. I mean, so there have been a, there have been a lot of, uh, in the last generation or two, where kids have kind of gotten away with stuff that my generation, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, never could have gotten away with. And, and when I say get away with, I mean, it's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, it just, but it certainly sets the stage for um, more disappointment if you've never been disappointed earlier in your life, right? If you haven't, you know, if you've never truly lost a, a game because everybody was awarded, you know, a medal for participating, or if you've never, you know, really gotten into a, an altercation and gotten scraped a little bit, you don't really know what that, that sort of feeling feels like. And so you don't have the ability to climb out of it. And that's a skill that, we develop at an early age that ability to to uh, rise above. Yes, and and without those sorts of uh, moments in our lives, there's a tendency to just sort of live kind of in a neutral zone and and not be affected by uh, by things because you're not 
you know, you, you, you never had the dramatic low or the tumultuous high as a result of climbing out of it. Exactly. Uh, I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but you, you see where I'm going with that? Well, absolutely. And that's definitely, you know, my first two books were about like the 20 something experience. Cause I was one of those 20 somethings, like trying to like figure it out. And especially with like 20 somethings now in early, early thirties, you were right. They were raised with their parents being involved in every aspect of their life and making all their decisions. So not only are they terrified to fail, but they have a really hard time with decisions because they have no autonomy. And so any decision they're faced with, they one, consult their parents and two, like really don't feel like they can make the choice on their own. And so whenever I, you know, talk to parents or talk to companies that work with millennials or talk to millennials themselves, my biggest advice is like, like mess up, fail, don't go in and save them. And for the millennials, like take some risks, be, don't, Listen to yourself, learn how to trust your own voice and listen to yourself so that you stop relying on someone else to tell you what to do. Uh, and also, I think it's a little humility goes a long way. You know, my life falling apart at 25 was very humbling as well. You know, there was some embarrassment about it for me as well. And that was a good thing, even though it was painful at the time. There was a part of me that was a little entitled. There was a part of me that thought like I deserved, you know, the world and we all deserve the world. But we, but we have to work for it. You know, we have to create, we have to create that world. And right. so we have to fall down on our face a couple times in order to have integrity with how we pursue things. Awesome. That was some, some great free advice for millennials and Gen Xers. Now, <laughs> do you have something for the baby boomers out there? Oh, stop overparenting your children. That's a big one. Like the whole response, I don't know, honey. I bet you have the answer. Um, also, like, get them off your payroll. In other words, let them figure out their money situations themselves. Um, stop writing their resumes for them. I've seen that way too many times. Sure, help your child and, you know, empower them to a certain extent. I mean, I get so much pushback from baby boomer parents when I say, don't get your child that job. Stop helping them so much. And they're like, but I have these opportunities and I'm their parent and I should help them and da da da. da. And I'm like, well, then you get used to helping them for the rest of their lives because like that's kind of what you're setting up. The other thing I'd say about um, baby boomers is that, you know, the psychology of baby boomers too was work really, 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 really hard. And so I think for a lot of baby boomers, it's time to have a little more fun and it's time to think about service as well. And the biggest uh, shift I see baby boomers make that improves the quality of their life is when they really get actively involved in mentoring younger people, not, not their children per se, but when they really get involved with helping other generations, because baby boomers are kind of running the world right now. It's going to change pretty soon. The millennial generation outnumbers the baby boomers. Um, and by 2020, there's going to be 80 million millennials. So they're coming and they're going to, they're going to compromise 75 and they're going to um, comprise 75%. They could compromise them too, but yeah. they'll <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they'll make up, so I'll, I'll use easier words. They'll make up 75% of the workforce. So 
for baby boomers, if you're working with them and they're annoying you, embrace them. But honestly, the people, the generation that's annoyed the most by millennials are Gen Xers. Because mm. Gen Xers are like this small, cynical generation that really had to prove it all on their own. And the millennials are coming into the workforce and it's the Xers, like the 40-somethings that are so annoyed by the the perceived... Well, you know, right. The millennials have been given some amazing tools to leverage... Their, their knowledge if they want to take advantage of it really quickly, right? Just growing businesses and doing the things that, that you and I are, are seeing on a regular basis. Exactly. And, and that may be um, part of the difference here. Well, look, we're, um, we're closing in on the time limit here today. Um, I really, really appreciate your input today on this concept of, or these concepts of motivation and purpose. Um, I think it's, it's huge. I think uh, it's going to be even bigger in the next decade uh, as, as things uh, sort themselves out, whether it's politically or uh, in, the, in the workforce or in technology or whatever. So I think, you know, I think we're on to something really big here. Um, I want to put a, a little bit of a, a word out to anybody who's considering a career change. This primalhealthcoach.com is an amazing opportunity to be of service uh, to other people, even if you're doing it just to to uh, increase your own knowledge about how you live your own life, but uh, more to the point, if you want to, you know, turn it into a business or a business opportunity, that's there for you. And Christine, you've been an integral part of putting that coaching aspect of it together, and people are just loving the modules in which you are coaching the coaches and asking the right kind of questions. Uh, so we're looking forward to a very big year with PrimalHealthCoach.com. And uh, I want to thank you for your participation in that, your continued participation. I think pretty soon you and I are going to be announcing some some retreat-like yes. opportunities for those coaches to come in and, and do mastermind weekends and, and business building opportunities. So that'll be spectacular. Um, what would you like to tell our audience about your particular uh, endeavors in the coming couple of months? Oh, well, I have two things to say before that. I'll be brief, though. Um, first about the primal health coaching community. The other thing is community. Like that's another thing that I think is so valuable about the program is that there's community and there's like-minded people. Um, so for anyone that's like not only looking for a service-based business, but also just wants more connection, I just, I, that's one of the many reasons that I love it. So I just wanted to, to add that as well. Um, also because we did mention my whole journey with depression, a big question I get when I'm on these podcasts is how did you get off of the drugs? And I just want to say, I didn't just stop one day. I didn't just stop the medication and just decided I worked with alternative practitioners. I detoxed my diet. I did so much emotional work. There was spiritual aspects involved in it as well. So I do, I don't want to put out there that like one day I just decided and it was easy it was something that I committed to and it was like a process of a year or two that, that it took to, to do that. So if people have additional questions about that, they can reach out. I'm actually going to be releasing a video soon where I really talk deeply about how to, how I did it. I just didn't want to like tread over that too lightly. No, it's, it's, that's great that you're going to be releasing that. And, uh, so many people are are in that uh, downward spiral. So uh, they really are. And actually, I read something in the Wall Street Journal too recently. So it must be true that uh, men, you know, suffer from depression differently and a little more silently, and that more and more men are starting to really realize that they're having the symptoms of it. But because men tend to still like get out and do things, they don't always know that they're depressed. 
but they lose a lot of their drive. And it's really hard as a man to connect to your purpose and drive when you're feeling that slump and that depression. So I, I love that we're bringing this conversation up and that you know, more and more men are feeling vulnerable, like permission to be vulnerable enough to start talking about their feelings because men have feelings too. Oh, they do? <laughs> no, no, they absolutely, absolutely do. And, and it's been overlooked for too long. And uh, that's spectacular. That's fantastic that you're, that you're moving into this area. Um, okay, links at the bottom of, uh, of the page here today and, uh, or directly to www.christinehassler.com. Uh, thanks again so much for joining me on the show today, Christine. Always a pleasure, and we'll do it again soon, okay? Oh, thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure, too. All right. Thanks, everyone. Stay primal. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here, and I'd like to tell you about my biggest undertaking yet, the Primal Health Coach Program. My mission is to create a global network of primal health coaches to help transform the health and consciousness of our communities into ones of optimal wellness and happiness. Becoming a primal health coach empowers you to take your primal passions to the next level and embark on a career you love, inspiring others to live lives of vitality and lasting wellness. If you dream of a career in health coaching but have been held back by worries such as the investment of time and money, then I encourage you to hesitate no longer. Health coaching is the fastest growing specialty in all of coaching. And we've created an online education program that allows you to learn from the comfort of your own home and at your own pace. We also have payment plans available, so you can start immediately for just a dollar down. The world needs primal health coaches to provide a blend of ancestral wellness solutions to the modern health crisis. The world needs you. Are you ready to become one of the world's most trusted, experienced, and knowledgeable health coaches? To learn more about this online certification program and to take the first step toward a career you love, visit PrimalHealthCoach.com and subscribe.